Welcome to the Event Production Show podcast. These sessions were recorded from our 2022 show and are now available for you to listen to on the move. This session is all about the changing face of the private security sector. The private security sector has evolved over the last 10 years with challenges around security resource being excavated by the pandemic and the introduction of protect duty by the Home Office in the last few months. This extremely experienced panel will be exploring current resource crisis solutions, changing market, licensing and the future of security. So thanks everyone for coming. Thanks to this amazing panel for coming. Uh, my name is Mike Kill. I'm the uh, chief executive for the Nighttime Industries Association, which is a trade body looking after businesses that operate predominantly between 6pm and 6am in the morning. But I also chair something called the UK Door Security Association, uh, which looks after uh, the security supply chain, uh, which predominantly supplies the late night economy. Um, we are, uh, I'm here to host and moderate a panel of some amazing guests, which we're you know, thrilled to have. Um, and the title of this uh, panel is around the changing face of the security sector. Uh, I think all of us uh, are very aware of the challenges in terms of resource. Um, but I think it's really important to start to understand the changing face in the future um, and some of the challenges, not only within the nighttime economy and some of the bricks and mortar businesses, but as we move into 2022 uh, and we get into a space where the festival and event season starts to uh, open up, um, which, which is amazing to be fair, to, to be in this space and be able to move forward that way as part of our recovery. Um, we can start to really understand and acknowledge the challenges that we have ahead of ourselves uh, and, and some of the, uh, the pieces that we really do need to focus on. So what I'm going to do is just go through our panellists and ask them to do a brief introduction of themselves and uh, give, give us a, a little bit of their experience and uh, then we'll get underway. Uh, Sam, can I bring you in first? Yes, my name is Sam Newson. I am the director of a company called The Events Company UK. Um, I'm here um, predominantly with um, links in with a client. We produced the first dance, which was the very first um, event as part of the government research programme um, post-COVID. Um, and so we sort of were at the front line then in terms of trying to staff security and events and how that worked post-COVID right through to now, sort of trying to deliver events and festivals throughout the country. Thank you. Eric, can I get you to introduce yourself, please? Hi, my name is Eric Stewart. Uh, I'm wearing three hats today. I'm the owner and director of Gentian Events, which is a bespoke crowd safety management company working UK, US and Canada predominantly. My other two hats that I don't get paid for, I'm chair of something called the United Kingdom Crowd Management Association, which represents all the major security companies, crowd managers, universities and students that are working in crowds and working with crowds. And just recently, we launched something called the Global Crowd Management Alliance, which is uh, launched in December. We've got 150 or so members, and we're in 16 different countries to try to spread the UK's experience and knowledge in how to manage crowds across to other countries and help them out with the problems that they've got. And I'm chair of that alliance as well. Amazing. Thanks, Eric. Fegan, can I get you to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, my name is Fegan Murray. Um, my son was one of the uh, 22 people who were killed at the Manchester Arena attack on 22nd of May 2017. Um, I'm also the instigator of Martin's Law, which is basically me asking the government to um, establish a legislation to make security at venues mandatory at the moment. It's only a recommendation. Thank you, Fegan. And Lorraine? 
Hi, good afternoon. I'm Lorraine Helland, representing Westminster Group. We're a global security provider, uh, providing security solutions in predominantly emerging markets, uh, working very hard in the UK, providing prestigious locations with security equipment to mitigate against risks and providing the security provisions also. Thank, thanks, Lorraine. And, and I think the important thing to understand here is, is uh, all that are on this panel have a huge part to play in, in really understanding and driving the issues around security shortage, but also understanding the impact of that security shortage and the quality of uh, uh, security that operate our businesses, our events, our conferences, etc. I, I just want to take you through and quote um, some uh, flashpole statistics to really give you an understanding of what the security sector looks post-pandemic at the moment and the struggles that we're facing. So at the moment, there is a, an 80%, we are looking at having only 80% pre-COVID resource. Uh, so we have a 20% deficit at the moment. Although right the way throughout the pandemic, the SIA have highlighted that there has been a huge amount of applications in terms of SIA uh, badges. We also are aware that there is a huge expansion in terms of the use of security in the public realm. So as you can understand, there is a, a challenge at the moment, particularly for late night economy and particularly for events and festivals as a whole. We're also aware that there's a 12% attrition rate. For those people who come on as new, we, use, we lose about 12, a negative 12% position on it. So that's a huge worry. We're not retaining, we're not keeping people in our industry. Uh, which has a huge challenge in terms of environmentally, the training they go through, the commitment in terms of cost, etc. So over and above that, and this is the impact piece, this is a bit that I think is, is quite important to understand. Uh, in terms of late night economy, and, and as my role, um, similar to yourself, Eric, unpaid, um, is 48% um, of businesses in the UK at the moment are affected by the security shortage. Bearing in mind that many of the businesses out there that have licenses, either a premises events, premises license, um, or events licenses, they are sat in a position where they have to accommodate for a certain level of security to adhere to the risk, whether it be through SAG or whether it be through premises license. So 48% of businesses affected. 20% of businesses have had to reduce their hours because of conditions on their license that suggests they have to have a certain amount of security on or reduce the capacity of events in, in different types of industry. Over and above that, there has been almost 3% in terms of closure. So businesses haven't been able to operate. So now you're starting to understand the impact that this sector has on the industry as a whole with this resource shortage. And that doesn't take into account probably the biggest point that we need to really enhance and, and nail down is the compromise in terms of the front line on, on public safety. Whether we talk about vulnerability, uh, we know about spiking, whether we talk about counter-terror, all of these things are gonna have a real impact. And with things like Protect Duty, which we're gonna talk about with Fegan later on, um, these are gonna have a huge impact on the efficiency in, in getting these in place. And something that the Home Office and the SIA need to accommodate for as we move into the busier period of the year. So, I mean, the first question I want to ask anybody here, anyone on the panel, and I appreciate, Fegan, it's not your expertise, it's slightly different, so I'm going to stick to the experts in terms of um, security. Why have we got a shortage? What is the issue? Eric, can I bring you in on that? 
Yeah, I wish it was a simple one-word answer, but it isn't. Um, let's just look at a few of the basics. For 18 months, the security industry, in terms of events, has had no work. So the people that did work on the festival events site, nightclubs, pubs and such like, they had to go and try and find alternative work. And they may have gone to drive vans for Tesco's or stock shelves at Sainsbury's or gone to work at COVID centres. But whatever they've done, they've quite often found pay and conditions better than they used to in the events industry. Most of us stupid enough to work in this industry do it because we love it. The money's rubbish, the hours are dreadful, and the conditions that you work in, in greenfield sites in mud and rain or baking sun, really just don't make any sense. When you step away and look at what we do, you wonder why. And some of those have stepped away, found a better world, and they've not come back. We hope they would. But apart from that, of the 360,000 or so licensed SIA staff pre-COVID, of which, incidentally, we were already about 10 to 15% short on a peak summer weekend, 50,000 of those have got primary addresses registered outside the UK, uh, all over Europe, predominantly Eastern Europe. And when COVID came in, most of those had a choice between staying in England and trying to live on no money and no benefits and no government grants. There was nothing available for the self-employed or the, the contract workers in this industry. Or go back home to Eastern Europe, where the cost of living is a third of what it is in the UK. Most of those have gone back. 50,000 people went back to their homeland. And during lockdown, or during the non-event period, we had that thing called Brexit, which I always try to avoid talking about. But what it did mean is that they missed the cutoff for the forms for the applications to return to work back in the UK. Now, we don't know because nobody's got the exact figures, but if we go around the top five security companies in the UK and say, of your overseas workforce, how many are back at work with you? It averages between five and 10%. So of the 50,000 that left, maybe five to 10,000 have come back. That's 40,000 gone out of what was a total of 360,000. How many of the others, the 300,000 or so others, have gone and found other work? We just don't know. What we do know is now when security companies are putting out the call, sending out the text, sending out the WhatsApp message, they're getting a response that's about 60 or 70% of what it used to be. So the indicators that we're 20 to 30, maybe even 40% short across the market, feel around about the right levels. So most of our security companies and, and the, the suppliers of safety and security that are members, we do a snap poll every couple of months to see how they're feeling and, and what the status is. And they are still feeling less, less comfortable now than they were three months ago. They're really struggling to get staff. Most security companies are overbooking by between 20 and 30%, with an expected shortfall on the day for your events of 10% below what they would want to get. But 20 to 30% overbooking to achieve a 90% actually staffing level on the day. And when we look at where they feel in terms of, is it getting better, is it the same, or is it getting worse? About 70% sit in the, it's about the same as it was last year, which was bad, or are saying it's actually worse. So that's some of many, many reasons why we've got these shortages. Thanks, Eric. Lorraine, can I bring you into that? Yeah, I absolutely concur with, with everything that you've said there. And I think with four recruitment campaigns that we've done over the past year, we've seen a reduction in applicants of around about 50, 50 to 60%. You know, we're just, and this, this is jobs that we're advertising that are above 
London living wage. You know, so it's not even low-paid work. That, that we're just not getting the same applicants. We're most certainly not getting the, the same calibre of applicants that we were receiving before. And I think it's that they've moved on. They've found other employment since um, the pandemic has hit. And I think they're moving on to companies where they're receiving benefits that they've never received in the security industry. You know, they're not being taken advantage of with unethical zero-hour contracts. They're, they're receiving holiday pay, receiving sick pay, um, and, and the other benefits with pensions and so on and so forth that just are not offered in the security industry. And I think we just need to find a way that this, this is a, a profession where it should have progression. And what we're finding is that there isn't progression for, the, for these staff to move on to. So, so it's just a stopgap. And, and now with the pandemic, they've found those are the lines of work and they're, they're just not returning. The, in, the interesting part, I mean, we, we talk about the regulator and we'll get into it a little bit deeper. But when you look at many people take on, especially door work or event work as part-time work, and, and what they will tend to do is with the training that's, that's being asked to go into place for new people coming in, if you've got a full-time job in the week and then you go to security on the weekend, whether you work two nights, it, it just, there's, you know, you're not going to take a week off to train for a part-time job. It's just not going to happen. And, and I think that, that shows the disparity between the regulator and the market understanding. Um, but Sam, can you uh, give us a perspective? Because you've got a great perspective in terms of events. Yeah, because... You know, obviously the security industry as a whole is affected like this, numbers down, but I think the events are even more so because what you found is, you know, there are still jobs in the security industry for people that are around, but they might go and sit on a COVID test centre, uh, which are all SIA staff, which is, you know, was part of a massive factor of numbers down on event sites because all of a sudden someone's like, well, no, I can go and do 50, 60 hours a week on a COVID test centre. They're paying me more money and without being too dramatic, you are on the front line as a member of security. Look at, you don't have to look at the news every day, the knife crime, the abuse that door staff get on a festival site, on a door, I see it on a weekly basis. And you've got to think as a person, it's, well, all right, I'm getting one pound more than um, sort of the living wage, but I'm standing here, I'm getting spat at, I'm getting shouted at. There are people in these venues at these events with knives that wanted to cause me harm or I can go and sit at that COVID test center where I don't have any of that and it's an easier life. So we've got the issue where as a whole, people aren't wanting to come back to security because you know, they're finding better work or easier work elsewhere. But then the ones that are coming back are going, well, why do I want to go and stand on a front door and get abuse? I'll go and take that job. It's more hours and I don't get any hassle. And I think that has certainly, from an event point of view and a venue point of view, made things even worse because that people don't want to come. And because, because there is such a shortage, people can literally pick and choose now. It's not like before where sort of these are the shifts you're getting. It's now, no, I don't want to. And the same, an individual member of security might work for three different firms and he will literally cherry pick which one they want. You know, we've had it where corporate venues, race courses, things like that, are able to offer that slightly bit more money. And a member of staff goes, well, no, I don't, I'm not going to come work at your event. I'm going to go and do seven days a week there, earn turn pack two pound more, and that's all I'm bothered about, see you later. And that, for me, from events and venues and security that, is compounded even more with what everyone else is saying. So we're down already, and then people are choosing not to come back into events because of the issues we're facing with people. Everyone wants an easier life, and I think that's part of what's come 
from COVID and furlough and everything else like that, people are going, we just want easier lives now. We've, we've learned there are things better than this and why should we go and do that when we'll do something, even if we earn 50p an hour less, we're not bothered, it's less hassle. Just, just a question. I mean, we, uh, we did some work about four or five years ago under the NTIA where we brought together the SIA and highlighted a problem that was oncoming. Um, and, and I think uh, one of the things that was highlighted uh, post-pandemic, or we say post, we're in a, a zone of recovery, um, was that it's almost that shortage has been exacerbated. It's not something that wasn't happening, which had environmental issues, had regulator issues, home office direction issues, it also had, uh, you know, uh, end user issues as well in terms of things like rates and hours, etc. But it's such a complex issue, all of it, from events and festivals being seasonal to, you know, bricks and mortar businesses that need people or certain levels which are licensed. So there's, there's a huge amount of issue there. One question, do we know enough about the issue? Um, and, and Eric, I mean, you're a great one, to, and we've had lots of robust conversations about this, but... You know, um, we've got a regulator in the security industry authority and the home office that safeguard that position. Do we know enough about the marketplace in terms of the market requirement and what's out there at the moment and where that usage and also the quality of operator to ensure that we've got a really robust future? I think we do, but there's a difference between what we know and what we get from our members and from our friends working in the business and what government decides is evidence and gathering evidence to the level they require. I'm, I'm really conscious of, of not copying somebody else's phrase, but there was a great discussion a couple of weeks ago about whether or not there's enough evidence to say cocaine is driving the football problems at the moment, because we all know we've got problems in football. And the head of policing, national policing about football said, I don't need evidence to know that if it's raining outside and I go outside without a coat, I'm going to get wet. Why do we need to keep digging more and more stats and data when the whole industry knows we've got a massive problem? We've supplied the SIA, the SGSA, the Home Office, the Cabinet Office, DCMS, with all the data from the biggest security and stewarding companies in the UK that provide events. We've supplied them all the losses that they've got when they put the call out. I call that evidence. They call that hearsay. They want statistic and data, and that's how that drives. So, We've got the Sports Ground Safety Authority at the moment who took all our data from us and decided that the outcome of that was to do another survey. So they've done another survey, they've gone out across the country, interviewed a whole load of people, and they've got a whole load more data. And the outcome to that is, we need a bigger survey. In the meantime, that survey is going to take another four months or so. We're then in the middle of an events summer where we haven't got enough staff. I'd love to see more data, I'd love to see more information, but we know we've got a problem and we need to fix it before it's too late. Because I fear we're already a bit too late to the game. We've got to do something really quickly. I don't know what that is yet, not quite anyway, but we have to do something. I think, I think that we, we all agree that there are some imminent issues we need to deal with resource. Um, there are some medium term uh, strategy pieces that we need to understand in terms of the marketplace. Um, and, and we've lobbied very hard and had very robust conversations with uh, Rachel McLean, who's a safeguarding minister, and highlighted very clearly there is a shortcoming in understanding active badges, people who are actually working, what businesses are out there. At the moment, you've got an ACS scheme that um, is an accreditation scheme for security, which is voluntary. So if you want to put the money in and get that, and, and also with it, you're actually at a deficit when you're operating because others are doing it through 
UTR systems, without the training, without the infrastructure. So we really have got a almost a despot sort of um, program in terms of the Private Security Act and, and, and other things that encompass within it. Um, and just, Lorraine, can I get your perspective? Because you've got quite a broad security perspective in terms of your encompassment. Um, you know, what do you think that the, the regulator needs to do in sort of uh, the medium term is sort of understanding what the problem is so that we can make up, um, but also long term um, on, on how we start to resolve some of these issues? I just think we need to listen to the staff. I think we need to listen to the security staff themselves, listen to what their concerns are and what they're focusing. Um, I think even with training, you know, I totally agree with the new training that's been enforced, you know, with regards to first aid and the counter-terrorism. However, we haven't capped the cost of the training. So there are trainers out there, some unethical companies that are charging a fortune. And these guys have to take off days within the week for to do that training. And I think that the legislation should be around that capping it all and making sure that the training is the same price across the board and they're not being taken advantage of. In, in the papers that the SIA put out, they're presuming that companies pay for their training. Companies don't pay for their training at all. They're forced to pay for this themselves and take a week off work. So I think that it needs to be firm guidelines on the training for how everything is resolved and listen to those that are on the front line. Take it from them. Uh, and just talking about, and, and when we talk about impact, and, I, and I'm going to come into vulnerability, and I want to bring Fegan uh, into this in, in terms of protect duty and, and really sort of focus on counter-terror, because it's, it's a really important, important point to really sort of focus on in this panel. Um, in terms of vulnerability, we know that spiking incidents oh. have um, escalated in terms of reporting. Uh, I think a lot of people, particularly in the House, the, the Home Affairs Committee, I had a fantastic time being grilled for three quarters of an hour on uh, on spiking and why nightlife is the problem, not the fact that this is a broader, you know, uh, uh, problem in terms of society. Um, do you do you think there is a direct correlation between the shortage and the focus in terms of uh, things like public health? Because if you can imagine, we're putting so much pressure on these operate these. Operatives. Well, the ONS reported in March 2020 with regards to the fact that security staff were at the highest risk of death from COVID. They were on the front line in the banks, in the uh, outside shops, everything. These guys are the ones that are putting them, themselves at risk for to keep the rest of the public safe. I think we've got lots of problems within, within lots of industries with regards to the spikings, um, with unethical behaviour that's taking place. I think we need an accredited course for to deal with the training of people in these venues. Um, and I think that there's an awful lot of training and a broader knowledge needs to be gained by everybody how we move forward with dealing with vulnerable people and, and keeping everybody safe. Well, it was interesting. I was on a Bayes call this morning and I was questioned on whether the SIA should include a broader perspective in terms of vulnerability, duty of care, etc. of which, you know, absolutely. Uh, same way that counter-terror uh, and protect duty should have a formidable part in it. But, Eric, can I... So, I was, I was just going to say, we've, we've kind of gone down the route of, of the SIA and SIA security. And SIA certainly, and Sports Ground Safety Authority and government, seem to forget that the vast majority of staff on event sites aren't actually SIA, they're stewards. The crowd safety and crowd management teams are stewards, untrained, 
by law, there is no requirement for any training whatsoever. They don't have to go and do the first aid course. They don't have to go and do any form of welfare training. They have no training whatsoever, necessarily. And what are we doing with those people? We pay them absolute minimum wage, as, as little as the promoter can get away with paying for them. And I can write the best crowd management plan in the world, the most complex and, and safe evacuation plan in the world. But when it all goes wrong, I rely on 300 people on £8.50 an hour or less to keep their yellow jackets on and show people to the doors and open those doors and get it all right in sequence in time. We've, we've completely forgotten about the stewarding industry. It's not registered. It's, it's, there's no system to monitor those numbers and there's no training regime for them. And we need, to, we need to bring those two closer together. Because for me, the insider threat, there is no point locking our doors. There is no point having protect duty and Martin's Law to keep bad people out if we're paying them eight pound an hour to put a yellow jacket and come and work inside our venues. That is utterly pointless and we've got to sort that out. And the same thing, I mean, we're finding that, you know, you get these people and oh, well, we got here 15 minutes before our shift started because we didn't want to pay us for, you know, and you're saying, right, so, and, you know, people, oh, security didn't know where anything was. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know how to get escape. And it's like, well, he turned up 15 minutes before. He's never worked in the venue. He was spoken to by somebody who'd probably completely forgotten the security brief he'd had an hour before, um, quickly rushed in, there's your yellow jacket, go. And, you know, it could be your first shift and you're, you're working in an arena, an event site, you've been rushed in, you've given a jacket. You, you, somebody spoke to you a couple of weeks ago about what you needed to do if something happened. But and I think that sort of training and standardisation, it's not just a one-time thing of, right, we'll tell you what to do, we'll train you before you are able to become a steward, but it's also the continuation of the training. And we find it, you know, Staff, even staff that might have worked a venue for a long time, but go away for a month and come back, and things change. You know, the the, the sort of the, the whole thing about what we do is we are an adaptable industry. We're constantly changing, and, and we sometimes forget that with the staff that we're employing. That yes, we've changed X, Y, and Z, but they don't know that because it wasn't like that last time. And we're not we're not giving these people time to right. Can you talk through with me now what you've got to do in the emergency? It's not that. It's like if there's a fire, this is what you got to do. Right, go and stand there. I'll see you in four hours. I think the problem with that is as well is an awful lot of businesses see security as just a bane. You know, it's a price that you need to pay for something legally you have to have. However, they're the, they're the ones that are going to keep everything safe. If we haven't got enough security and something goes wrong, these are going to be the first people to be blamed. It doesn't generate a revenue. And I think that's where companies are loath to put too much money into paying for a decent security provision. Yeah. And, and I, I think, think that's fundamentally where think, issues lie. I think you're 100% right. I think when they look at it, they look at cash generators. Yeah. Um, and, and under the cost inflation position that everyone's under at the moment, uh, it's presented some huge challenges for people, people that are willing to take risks, sadly. And that's the, that's the challenge that we have ahead of us. I, I do, without a doubt, and I've had many conversations about whether we look at SAA licensed security, whether we look at um, uh, stewarding, um, and we encompass it under the same uh, sort of regulations with training, etc. Bringing in, so there is a level of training with everything that goes on. Sadly, what's happening, and, and we're seeing the impact of that in terms of the way that uh, festivals and events are taking place, but nightclubs and other venues which are bricks and mortar event spaces are also suffering because they're only allowed SIA security. Um, if they were allowed stewarding over and above that, I think there would be a stronger safeguarded position 
uh, and possibly sort of levy out. Um, because, you know, let's, let's not take away, there are people worried about surviving. Viability is a key thing, you know? So, you know, we can talk about protection, but if it's not affordable, you know, people will just go bust and go to the wall and, and you know, we're losing things in different areas, including jobs, etc. So, look, I, I think everyone's got some concern about the festival and event season coming up. Uh, I, I want to steer focus, and I think it's, it's great that we're talking about stewarding and the encompassment and regulators and home office taking some responsibility because I think we as trade bodies, um, I know Eric and, and others on here and Afigan, you've had a huge impact because they can't ignore you because every time it becomes a problem, we throw you out the front. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, is we're starting to have a huge amount of influence, whether it be media pressure, security is being talked about more than it ever has been. Um, they still can't get past bouncers, whether you're a steward or not. But the fact of the matter is we're being spoken about and that's the important bit. I really want to just bring up the protect duty position and uh, Fegan, uh, you've been hugely brave and, and a fantastic advocate for Martin's law and protect duty and I'm hugely proud to know you, let alone sat on the same stage with you. But I, I, I really want to know what, what do you want to see? How do you want to see this develop? What, what has, I, I know the driver behind this, but I really want to just hear from you exactly you know, what you've gone through and the experiences in the home office, et cetera, to get to this point and, and possibly some of the frustrations, which I, I think we both know that are probably more than the benefits at the moment. Yeah. Well, my first frustration, I, ha I hate to say it, I came into this building straight from the uh, public transport, walked in, walked down this long, long corridor to find this hall. And I noticed there's a graduation from UCL happening with hundreds and hundreds of students and their loved ones, and I came finally to this building, and at no point, I have a travel bag with me and a handbag because I'm staying. I've got two more events tomorrow where I'm talking, so I had to take an overnight bag. So I've got this travel bag with me, and not a single person stopped me and checked what I have in it. Nobody did a bag search, and that frustrated me immensely. I could have just gone in a corner and wept, to be honest, because it's the sort of... Um, apathy of security that actually made people die at the arena attack. So, you know, after all this time, to come into a building and not being checked is quite frustrating for me. I wanted someone to check my bag and it didn't happen. So, but everything that's said now on stage, just as I was listening, is relevant to what I'm trying to do. The whole industry seems to be in chaos. It's, uh, of course, COVID didn't help. Brexit didn't help, but actually um, it's, it's so diabolical, it's so in disarray, so disorganized, there's no standardization at all. And my, my, really my aim with, with bringing in this duty would be that it's not just the legislation that comes in, but that the security sector as a whole just embraces it, grabs it, and seizes it as an opportunity to professionalize the industry from scratch, start afresh with accredited courses, with decent wages, with um, decent contracts for people that they get paid for their training. All of, everything that was mentioned can be rectified if only the whole industry does the same thing. So I'll keep banging on about it, I keep talking and talking about it, 
I have a meeting with SIA in June, early June. I am in constant um, meetings with the Home Office, um, with the security minister and his staff. I've got another meeting early April with them. So I keep talking about it, but the whole industry needs to do their bit. Um, the training has to include um, lead control training, to, because like you said, if something happens, it's those security people who very often are there with the injured people. And if they don't have the adequate training, they cannot save lives. And all that has to be part of it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you summed it up in really some weird, some quality control, some standardization is something that without a doubt um, needs to be a focus. Uh, and, and, and I think everyone's behind you, Fegan, trust me. Sam? Well, on top of that, I think, you know, it's not just the training for the security personnel, but local authorities, sort of the, the people who are regulating this, because so many times, wherever you're delivering an event, you, you know, you could go and work with one local authority that's great, or local police force, or somebody that it works with you, they're on top, they think about these things, they think about things that you might not have thought of because they're used to dealing with an event in this space and, and things like that. And then you go 20 miles down the road with a completely different local authority that have no idea about events properly, no idea what they should be checking on. And obviously the problem is there's not a specific from the government of you should do this, this and this every time and that needs to come in. But the training of the people who are overseeing events. Now, you know, part of it could be training for events organizers. So as an events organizer, you need to make sure that you know what you're booking. Because a lot of that doesn't happen. You know, it's, I'll, I'll just call up my local security firm and get them to tell me what I need. You know, you, you don't know, but same thing, local authorities, police forces, councils, whatever it is, they don't necessarily have the skills or the training to sort of work with event organizers and things like that. And that is a massive problem we face time and time again, because, you know, they don't know. And, you know, we found it, on other things post-COVID where, you know, we were going to one local authority and we were doing X, Y, and Z, even just from a, you know, how, what we had to do to make the event COVID compliant. But you go to another event, uh, you know, another local authority and they have no idea or they have completely different rules. And it sort of, it became apparent then, but then when you look at it, actually that's across everything from how they want an event secured, be it security or CCTV or whatever it is. And there's no, there's no specific guidelines or training for the people who are in charge either. And I think that is a big, big problem will always face until that's dealt with as well. I think it's got, I mean, you know, we talk, we talk about protect duty, so just drawing back, uh, and Fegan, we, we had a preliminary or preemptive meeting where we all sort of jumped on a, uh, a call and, and sort of aired our frustrations around the report on consultation from protect duty, and, uh, and, and we all sat there and, well, when? When's it happening? What's the infrastructure? You know, and it, it just really epitomised. I mean, we did a, an hour before this on insurance, you know, and, it, and it's the same thing. SIA, infrastructure, you know, we've got to start with an infrastructure and a, a foundation that we can build on. And at the moment, you know, when we talk about the SIA, we talk about stewarding or anything else, there is, a, a, there is no solid foundation for us to build on. And that's the bit that's a concern. So... I mean, it would be great to hear from you, and I know you aired your frustration, and I'm, I'm sure at your meeting with the Home Office next, you're going to give them some clarity. Um, but it would be good to hear and see if you can give us an understanding of your feedback on the, re the recent report, I suppose. Yeah, so obviously the government did a public consultation that lasted 18 weeks, and uh, a couple of months ago or so, we got the what they called the results of the publication which weren't actually the response, sorry, they called it a response, a government response. It was actually more a summary of the responses 
Uh, now, the consultation had 2,755 responses, which for a public consultation is a great number to have, and it was very extensive, the responses. But actually, the, the, the few comments that were given in the results, in the summary, that the government made, to my liking, are a little bit um, ambiguous. Um, what I want to see is, I don't want words like optional, uh, recommended, guidelines. I don't like those words because I feel that any legislation to do with the protect duty has to be crystal clear, it's got to be robust, and it's got to be without any ambiguity. Because if, if, that, if words like that are used, I just feel that it's going to become a legislation with the back door wide open, and that's not going to be any use to anybody because people will use that back door and it's gonna, that the law will end up on a heap of failed legislation and that's not what I'm doing this work for. It has to be robust and clear. Thank, thanks, Fegan. Um, Eric, you, you have done a lot of work in this sector as well. Can I get you to give me some feedback without saying anything that's gonna incriminate you? What, without an angry response, you mean? <laughs> I, think we're I, all I, angry. I find I, we are angry, you know, and it, it embarrasses me and, and it saddens me that we're sitting on the stage and the smallest person on this stage is the one that we're having to use as the battering ram. And we do regularly call on Fegan to help us to try and open doors. But I, I, I don't know where we go. Picking up on Sam's point, we have a fantastic system in this country called the Safety Advisory Group System. But the clue's in the title. It's advisory. I, I planned the, the policing response for the Olympic torch relay in 2012 and sent out five police planners across the, the UK and told them what these SAGs do, how they would help and how to support. And then they came back and said, it's not like that. Every county is different. Every town is different. Every city is different. So in 2015, voluntarily, with some friends, we sat down and wrote guidance for safety advisory groups. But it's voluntary. And they're advisory. And then I got a phone call last night. I did a training course south of London uh, last week. Get a phone call last night from someone to say, we've just spoken to our adjoining town, and they're scrapping their safety advisory group because they think it might make them culpable for the people that are going to the event. Whereas the SAG guidance says all the way through, that's not what it's about. It's help and support. It's the fire, police, ambulance, licensing, highways, all coming together and supporting people who are putting on events to check that events are safe. And we rewrote that guidance in 19 and we're rewriting it again now, but it remains advisory. And there, so should, John, there should be cross-party sharing of oh, that. Absolutely. You, know, I mean, you can go, certainly for us up north, you know, you go to Liverpool, now the SAG at Liverpool is great, they are an event city, that is what they do Absolutely. and they're all over it. Yeah. But you go down the road and you could go, well, I'm going to do a small festival in Burnley that might only have one event of that type a year and they have no idea what's going on and you're telling them the things that they should be talking to you about and the problem is, is until those police forces, councils, whatever, start sharing information and same with, we had it with public health as well, sort of post-COVID, until these sort of all these departments on a local level or a national level start sharing the information and there is clear definitive guidelines, you're never going to achieve anything because no. you can implement something there that we think is safe and that person there knows nothing about it. You know, you go to Blackpool, you do something on Blackpool Prom, it's a class one, you know, there are snipers on the roof, there is, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the terrorism threat level there and what they've implemented is fantastic, but you go down the road Nothing. Nothing because they don't know anything about that and they've not got the expertise in that and they're not going, well, what, what should we be doing with regards to terrorism on this scheme? What should we be thinking about? Because they don't know because that guidance is not being shared or spoken about. 
Yeah, and when you bear in mind that probably 75 to 80% of events in the UK that take place where in terms of people that come to watch it, they're actually non-licensable activities. So they're not even going through those safety checks of having a license. The, the festivals, the carnivals, the processions, the parades, the cycle races, the marathons and half marathons, none of those are licensable activity. The only safety check that ever takes place is through the safety advisory group process. And now I'm getting phone calls to say, well, we feel a bit nervous about SAG, so we're going to scrap it. We're actually going to take that process away from, from checking that. I, 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 think we need, I think we need to have a, a bit of a plight here. We need to eradicate voluntary advisory and guidance as words used yeah. in uh, progressive security strategy and policy, possibly. Um, and, and I think, every, look, I, I'm, I'm conscious of time and sort of wrapping up here. I think there is a massive amount of work I think there is some imminent issues in terms of resource level that need to be dealt with. We know that COVID testing sites are starting to close down as of the end of March. The feedback that we've got is there is still going to be a considerable shortcoming, particularly in the north of uh, England and Scotland, comparative to the south. Uh, sorry, Sam. Um, but uh, I, I think there's still a huge amount of work. And, and you're quite right, Fegan, and, and everyone on the panel have highlighted this very clearly. Um, I think the infrastructure is, is hugely lacking for us to sort of set a foundation and build something moving forward. And I've said this a couple of weeks ago in a panel, I said, we've got a ground zero moment. Yeah. We've got an opportunity to build from a strong infrastructure. Mm -hmm. If we've got regulators and government departments that are pushing back saying, I don't see what the problem is, then we've got a bigger issue that we need to overcome. And, and I think that's something that we all have lobbied very hard for. We've all driven hard to ensure that people are understanding, they're educated, but I, I think it's gonna take a huge thrust. And sadly, what we don't want to see is, is the, the situation that happened in Manchester with the devastating outcomes to families and people from, uh, from, from that, that tragedy that has brought about uh, Fegan and, and other people to stand up and drive forward. So. Uh, I think it's important that as a sector, as an industry, the more people that are talking and driving forward and trying to set standards uh, is vitally important. But I think the biggest thing is, is we need to have something centralised. We're seeing it with drink spiking at the moment, 52 police forces all doing 52 different types of training and 52 different processes. At what point are we going to have a government that actually centralises the process, makes it very clear puts an accreditation and a training scheme in, everyone can adhere to, and then there is no disparity. Everyone knows where they are, but I think we've constantly got this issue with disparity regionally, with decision-making, et cetera. Um, I'm just gonna ask, last before I go to Q&A, um, uh, just last comments, what would you say to the, uh, uh, and I'm thinking I'm sure there's a couple of colorful things that you'd say to the Home Secretary at the moment. Uh, what would you say to the Home Secretary, given the opportunity at the moment, Lorraine, um, from a security perspective. I would just say things need to be standardised and not be open to interpretation. That would be the biggest thing for me. Um, can I skip you, Fegan, for the minute and just I'll come yeah. to you at the end if that's okay. Uh, Eric, can I... Uh... I would say, although it was terrorism driven, Manchester should have been the events industry's Hillsborough. At the moment, it feels like the events industry's Ibrooks where we learned some stuff, then got a bit fluffy, then moved on, and then we had Hillsborough because we didn't learn properly from Ibrox. And if we don't learn properly from Manchester, I, I hate to say it, and I feel embarrassed to say it, 
that I'm sitting on the stage and vegan, we're going to have another one because we, we have not got it right yet and I don't even see the signs of us getting it right yet. This industry has got to be professionalised, it's got to be a career path, it's got to be something that people want to do as a profession that they can take pride in, not a weekend job where they can get eight quid, eight pound fifty an hour, but then a band drives around the event site waving wads of twenties out the window as we saw in July, August and September, poaching people onto another event site and pay them cash in hand. That has got to go. And the SIA, SGSA and government have got to help us do that. We've got to clamp down on that. Just, just as well, HMRC and the SIA are clamping down on it. Um, yeah. We've had some quite robust conversations just to give you a bit of... Uh, it's very we colourful. But, <laughs> uh, Sam, can I get in? Then I'll... Uh, I'll uh, vegan. Yeah, these things need to happen now. Uh, and this year is going to get worse than last year. Because yeah. um, the other thing as well... This year, the venues are still open. It's not like on a normal summer where essentially most of your venues are closed and everyone's in green fields. There's such a bad backlog. Everyone is playing catching up, so you will have arenas and venues open the same time as Greenfield. So it's going to be worse than it's ever been. But if we don't start working on it now, it's never going to get better. And I think it's, oh, we'll do it later on, we'll do it later on, and it's never going to work. It's got to be, this is what you've got to do. It's got to be clear and concise, and they've got to start working on it. We can't wait any longer. Thanks, Sam. Vegan, and, and dare I ask, um, and I'm sure you've been sat in front of the Home Secretary a few times, um, but uh, what do you want to see as of today, given the consultation report um, and, and, and what you have seen and what's frustrated you? What would you say to her? Uh, what you said, Eric, I want to see the industry standardised. I want fresh young blood to come in and make the industry a, an appealing pro professional route to take where there's a professional progression route where people can start at the bottom, work their way up, and, and it's a respectable industry and, and job to do. Um, and I want the government to just speed up things a bit. I know laws can be passed quick because COVID laws have been passed super quick. So, But my learning has been it's taken incredibly a long time. But as I said in the very, very first meeting at the Home Office, I said... I'm only five foot short, but I read somewhere that if you think being small is not effective, you've never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> so, so I'm the mosquito, and I have unfortunately realised I need to keep buzzing around, and I will do. Thank you, Vegan, and thank you uh, for your hard work and everyone on the panel's hard work. Um, I just want to put it out to the audience. Has anyone got any questions that they'd uh, like to put to our panellists? Silence says it all. Sounds like we've answered all the questions. That was easy. Um, uh, listen, I, I, I just want to say it's, it's been a privilege being sat on the same stage as all of you. And um, please continue your hard work. Uh, we will uh, endeavour to get there one way or another, uh, for either publicly or politically. We will push them in the right direction. And I think we've all got that in our locker. So thank you so much for spending the time and... and giving us your candid answers to uh, an array of questions that uh, I'm sure the audience have enjoyed. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank Mike. You. Thank you. Want to learn more about the show that brings together event professionals from every sector? Visit eventproductionshow.co.uk.